0: and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast Magical Rewind.
1: You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter.
0: And the Cheetah Girls movies.
1: Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you
0: grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen so kick back grab your popcorn and join us listen to magical rewind on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts brought to you by state farm like a good neighbor state farm is there I'm
2: Katie Couric, and this is Turnout. As you have no doubt heard, the 2020 election welcomed historic turnout. But what does that turnout mean? And who actually turned out? Data journalists are starting to comb through the numbers.
1: I'm Neil Rothschild. I'm the director of audience for Axios, and I also cover politics from the data lens. And I wrote an article about how to explain what happened in the 2020 election.
2: Typically post-election analysis like this is done mostly with exit polling. But of course 2020 was no typical year.
1: Because so many people voted early this year, well, exit polling's no longer such a reliable way to you know, get at this. And as we saw also with kind of the way polling performed as a predictor of this election, like polling's taking a big hit in reputation anyway. So forget exit polls. This
2: year, to get a picture of who turned out, data journalists like Neil can look county by county and compare the tallied votes with available demographic information.
1: All of the results we're looking at are official election results uh, that are coming through each state, but you can divide them up by each county because each state reports their counties that feed into the state-level total, which will help to allocate electoral votes so by looking at that state voting total and then diving into the demographic area so this is a heavily latino community this is a suburban area so you can start to get a sense of okay so this suburb swung toward biden by 12 points compared to 2016 that allows you to start to really like learn about what the key demographic trends were for the election What did the voting results say in these key counties? What did the vote say? And for those areas, what changed in 2020 compared to 2016? What areas moved further left? Which areas moved further right? Even if in both cases they went Trump or both went Biden, those differences of within 20 or 30 points even for an area that went for Clinton and Biden can be really telling for the key shifts that are undergirding America's political preferences.
2: When comparing voting data from 2016 to 2020, Neal identified four trends that help explain the results.
1: So the first point is that suburbs have undergone a fundamental shift in favor of Democrats and away from Trump. It remains to be seen whether this is a lasting trend for Republicans or whether this is just a very Trump phenomenon that people in the suburbs are kind of turned off by his behavior and his rhetoric. The second point is that the blue areas have gotten even more blue and the red areas have really dug in for Trump. So we're not seeing a lot of cases where some urban areas have shifted towards Trump and some rural areas have shifted towards Biden. Each of those have really become even more entrenched in their politics I really think it is kind of a trust in institutions and for those in the cities and around the cities, a lot of them work for big employers and rely on kind of institutions like government and media and big business for both their livelihoods and kind of how they understand reliable information, while those in rural areas become less dependent on those companies and on those institutions and might be more kind of self-sustaining and reject being told what to think or how to think. And so for them, Trump more represents, you know, this idea that opposing what everyone else kind of just takes for truth and assumes to be the case, he really has galvanized that support across the country. Number three is that The white working class vote in the Midwest did not deliver for Biden, which is funny because that was his appeal in the Democratic primary.
3: The American middle class brings dignity,
1: integrity every day to work. They deserve the dignity and integrity reflected in their leaders. Kind of why you would vote for him instead of a Bernie or a Warren who might have more kind of educated and progressive. Aggressive appeal, but might not be able to get those working-class voters in the states that Clinton lost in 2016, which was Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And then the last point that helps to complicate things a bit is that Latino support for Trump grew in a number of key regions. Cuban support for Trump in Miami-Dade County got a lot of the attention on election night, but it was not you know, unique to just that area where there was trends towards Trump in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. A number of those counties had like double digit 20 plus point shifts towards Trump compared to what Clinton saw uh, in 2016.
2: Neil says there are a few surprises about this election that are worth noting.
1: Trump has gotten more minority support than Republican candidates for president in a couple decades. So he ended up, you know, being able to tap into something that I don't think either party was really expecting to be the case. And, you know, there could be a few factors that worked into this, like maybe the Trump campaign on the ground operation was just able to knock on doors in these areas that the Biden campaign, you know, figured that could be done remotely. Maybe it's just a high turnout election and some of that, you know, Latin America Catholic tradition ended up resulting in support for the Christian religious right for Republicans. That is also something that people didn't see coming. Trump's rhetoric made it seem like a gimme that Democrats would get the vast majority and make even bigger gains in support for voters of color when that's actually the opposite uh, of what we saw.
2: As the parties do their own election postmortems, Neil points to a few key lessons. I think
1: one area for soul-searching for Democrats is how Hispanic support for Trump has grown. And it's not just the Hispanic vote, but even the Black vote has turned towards Trump in a number of cities. Not enough that it became like a hugely meaningful election trend, but even in cities like Philadelphia or Chicago, if Hillary won it by 85 points over Trump in 2016, Biden won a handful of those by only 80 points this year. So of course, it's nowhere close to being able to say, Philadelphia or Chicago went red, but it's these small shifts that hint at where Trump might be able to corral more support. So for Democrats who've, you know, grown to assume that they would always have kind of the support and the base of people of color in this country might make them, you know, reckon with well there's more to be done and more that we need to prove to show that we should earn these votes. Republicans might see out of this that they can't rely on forever having to depend on white working-class voters outside of cities because that demographic is shrinking. It's poorer than the rest of the country. In population, it's shrinking. Incomes are getting smaller. So this coalition might have delivered for Trump in 2016, but it's not a long-term strategy and they need to do more to you know, grab that working class support and earn it in cities and suburbs. So it can't just be about kind of these rural areas, you really need to make inroads where the population centers are.
2: As for the rest of us, the real takeaway is that 2020 proved we are more partisan than ever.
1: We've become even more polarized and even more divided particularly by our geography, where if you're in cities and around cities, you believe one thing and trust a certain set of facts and assumptions. Whereas if you're outside of that and you live in rural areas, if you live in the country, you not only don't embrace it, but you outright reject it. And that, you know, has shown to be a huge groundswell of support for Trump.
2: When we come back, how to mend those divisions, an interview with author Mitch Albom.
0: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
3: between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary, indulges your senses, and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the Natural Hybrid
2: Mitch Albom is a journalist and a best-selling author. He wrote Tuesdays with Maury, perhaps his most famous book, along with many others. He's a really compassionate thinker and writer, so I thought it would be interesting to hear his perspective on how divided we are, the role the media may be playing, and how we can move forward. First and foremost, let's talk about the election What a wild ride. Had you ever seen anything like this, Mitch, in your life experience before?
4: No, I mean, the closest thing was probably the last one, you know, which I thought, well, won't get any wilder than that. I think everything that's happening right now, Katie, is in the shadow of a very weird time. Uh, I think the whole summer that we went through, I think all the dividedness that's happened in the country, you know, we, none of us, at least unless you're over 100 years old, have faced the pandemic and what it does to your psyche, what it does to your frame of mind, what it does to your sense of community or lack of sense of community, how scared it makes you. And I think all of those things are behind all the craziness that's gone on in 2020. So, uh, you know, the sports term is a mulligan. You know, you get a mulligan on a golf course for a year for, for a shot that just was errant. And we may need a mulligan for this year because it was errant in its own way.
2: And I don't know about you, Mitch, I guess in 1968, I'm not sure how old you were. I was 11. And I guess that's the closest thing to compare what we're going through now in terms of how divided and how passionate and how intense the division felt.
4: You know, the country being divided isn't new. I think the anger that comes with the division is fairly new. And I think that, uh, you know, there have always been Republicans and Democrats and always been liberals and conservatives, but they haven't uh, felt like the other one needs to be wiped out uh, the way it sort of feels like now. And I think that vitriol and that anger can be directly tied to social media and to media in general. And they didn't have that in 1968. That I remember. I was alive. And I remember we didn't have cell phones or iPhones or social media accounts. We had we had uh, baseball cards in our in the spokes of our bicycles. You know, <laughs> that's how high tech we
2: were. In an essay you wrote recently, which I think got a lot of attention, Mitch, uh, you said hopes for a national reconciliation may be threatened by new battle lines. So what did you mean exactly by that?
4: Well, I didn't. I think that was the headline for it. But what I wrote was, "It won't. It won't really matter what we do on Tuesday, if we don't change what we do on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday." And sadly, it turned out to be prophetic because Wednesday and Thursday and Friday were worse than Monday. You know, uh, in this particular case, because everybody was still fighting over the results, and they still are as we're as we're recording this. Um, so, you know, my point was that vitriol and divisiveness, they don't come to a head on one day of every four years. They take a lot longer than that to build up and they take a lot longer than that to bring down. And if anybody thought that there would be an election and then, oh good, we'll all just get along with one another. They really weren't paying very much attention to how we became divided in the first place. It wasn't just over an election. It was over a lot more than that. So an election didn't, election didn't create it. An election wasn't likely to solve it. Um, But my hope in that piece that you cited was that, you know, we tried to understand that we're a lot more alike than different. Um, But I've been saying that for a long time and writing that for a long time. And Maury said it to me when I wrote Tuesdays with Maury. You know, it's probably the first time I heard it verbalized that way. And um, what did he say
2: again exactly, Mitch?
4: He said, we're all more alike than different said, you know, everybody thinks they're going to die. Everybody knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. And he said, when you actually believe it, when you start to realize he had to because he was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease and was really facing his own mortality. He said, once you realize you're actually going to die, you're human after all, you feel a kinship with everybody else in the world who's suffering. I remember once I watched him, we were, we were, we flipped on the news. We almost never watched any television together, but we flipped on the news in Bosnia. There was something going on at the time Bosnia and they had some footage. It was very, you know, violent. And, um, and he started crying. And I said, why, why are you crying? He said, well, it's just so terrible. What's happening to those people. I said, no, but you've never been there. You've never been to Bosnia. You don't know anybody from Bosnia. He said, Mitch, when you really realize you're dying, um, you can you, you feel the suffering of everybody else in the world who's suffering as well. And you realize we're all more alike than different. I mean, that was the context in which he told me that. And I never forgot that because, you know, here he was watching something that we all watched dispassionately and like, well, I'm glad it's not here. And then we moved on. What what was different about him? Well, it was because in his brain, he had accepted the fact, that, you know, he really was a human being with all the ending that all human beings are going to face. And we don't really walk through life accepting that until suddenly we get hit with a doctor's diagnosis or, or we're in a hospital all of a sudden and we're, or we get COVID. Uh, and, and so um, that's the context that he said, it and it's very, very true. The problem, Katie, is we have to wait until we have a death sentence you know, or a terminal illness in order to recognize that we share humanity. But unfortunately, it usually takes something like that to shake us loose.
2: Let's talk about the role of the media, because you were very critical of the media in your essay. And honestly, Mitch, I'm very confused about how I feel about this. So maybe you can help me and be my therapist. But you and I right. have been in the media for a long time. Yes, it's changed dramatically. But where do you think the media has gone? You know, where did it go wrong? in terms of its complicity in aiding and abetting the divisiveness?
4: Well, I mean, you and I probably started in the journalism business around the same time. And I remember going to, you know, I went to Columbia Journalism School, got my master's there. And I remember the opening speech, the the first day of school, Osborne Elliott, who I think at the time was the editor of Newsweek, He made a speech and he talked about, well, what this business of journalism is all about. And it was all about having a fire in the belly to try to get to the the truth of things and and all that. And, 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 you know, to tell the stories that needed to be told. None of it had to do with bringing down people, belittling people, taking a side. None of that was ever spoken about. I mean, if anything, it was the other way around. It was, you know, be invisible. You know, bring the news and not you, not your views. You know, that's not the way what we what we call cable news today. Um, And I'm not taking sides on any of it. I mean, you can find, you know, pretty much all across the the board, uh, different degrees of it. But it's not really news in the sense that you and I, when we started in the business. Well, it's commentary.
2: It's commentary,
4: right? Disguises. Well, here's here's the factual thing that happened. Let me tell you my opinion about it. Here's the factual thing that happened. Here's what's wrong with it. Here's the factual thing that happened. Here's why these people are doing what these people are doing. And so how we got from where we were when you and I were starting this to now, uh, you know, you could point to a lot of things. It's a long discussion, but somewhere along the line, news started making money. You know this very well, you know, and the news division started to be places where you could see a profit, whereas before it was almost like something they did just for the social good. You know, they made every television made its money on their on the Lassie programs and they put the news up. You know, and said, OK, we have to do the news. But when the news started to become profit, uh, you know, people started taking different directions. And it has grown. And you don't need me to rehash how Fox News is going one direction, MSNBC, another direction, CNN in another direction.
2: Well, I think, I think also I'm just going to add as as the landscape become became more fragmented, I think outlets became more niche. So if they wanted to get an audience that was loyal to whatever they were delivering, uh, it wasn't interesting enough or enraging enough, because Kara Swisher calls it engagement through enragement, that people would want to see stuff that was conflict-free or that was just the facts, ma'am. And so Mm. as a result, I think it was more profitable to get to to give people I've said this a million times but it's so fitting affirmation instead of information to that's to right. get them riled up emotionally and so I think that's one of the reasons we've seen this bifurcated media landscape bubble up and explode if you will in the last 4 years That's right.
4: I mean it seems kind of crazy and I'm, a, I'm, you know, I, I try because I still write for a newspaper, even though I'm not primarily do books and movies and charities and stuff like that. But I still write a newspaper column, and therefore I'm obligated to stay informed. And I watch all three of the cable networks. When I, when I sit down and watch, I will always flip back and forth because I want to see not only the information, but I want to see how people are playing the information. What is it? And it's gotten to the point where it's like reporting on different planets. You will see a totally different broadcast on one cable news network than you will see on the other. Not the same stories, not the same footage. Uh, Forget about the commentary. The information isn't the same. So even what people are choosing to bring forward and choosing to suppress is different on every single channel. Now, that shouldn't be. If you've got national news, chances are 80, 90 percent of The news of the day should be the same on each one. If you're really just talking about the news, here's the important things that happen. It's not. I mean, you literally can watch a half hour of one program and not see anything closely related to the other. So I think that's where it begins. Then there's a problem with the, I think, the geography of the country. And I mentioned that um, in the piece that you referenced. I live here in Detroit, in Michigan. I have for many years. for over three decades now. So I consider this my home, but I was raised in the East and I, you know, I, I, I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to college in Boston. I lived in New York, and Florida. So I, I know East coast and I worked for some publications on the East coast as well. And I have a lot of friends who are still there back in the big cities and on the Los Angeles coast as well. And I think somewhere along the line, we really got separated in our viewpoint of what this country is and what the values are by where we live and the media that we are subject to in those areas. So I can tell you living out here in the Midwest, I have many conversations with my friends in the East and they just don't get it. You know, they just don't. They think they think people out here are are nuts, you know, or how could they or how could they this or how could they that? And now those are my friends, the people who are in the media, some have started to take that to another level where it's like they're too stupid to know what's good for them. And so we need to tell them what's good for them. That should never be a journalist's position. I don't care what publication you work for. You should never look down on people who read you or follow you or somehow say, well, they're hopeless. I'm just gonna tell them what they need. And somewhere, and that works for both sides, both sides. And somewhere along the line, we got into that business of, um, you know, we're smarter than the people who are consuming our news. And that I think was a was a bad day.
2: I guess I, I, I buy everything you're saying, Mitch, and agree with you wholeheartedly, except I feel like it's very hard to have this conversation when you have a president like Donald J. Trump. And let's talk about that, because when you have someone who is not truthful, who behaves in a way that's, let's just put it out there, morally repugnant, right? Making fun of handicapped people, uh, grabbing women by the you know what's, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But how do you point out when someone is, you know, the, the leader of the free world, and is, is trading in mistruths and misinformation, go.
4: <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, as I told you before we started this, I'm not a political writer. I'm not You know, really... and, I, and
2: I don't, I, but I, I think that's what I struggle with. And that's what I wrestle yeah. with.
4: Yeah, well, I'm not well-versed enough or knowledgeable enough to ev- evaluate the presidency or how you cover the president uh, because it's not what I do. Uh, but but you're,
2: you're well informed, Mitch. You you yeah. watch the news.
4: Yeah. But 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 I don't I'm not in the position of having to say, well, how do you how do you deal with the question that you asked me? You know, how do you deal with a person who lies or a person who does the repugnant things as you refer to them, whatever? How do you cover them? Fortunately, that's not my job. and I don't have to do it. But what I can say to that is I think there's a difference between how you cover a president and how you cover people who may have voted for the president. And that to me, when I wrote that piece, that was, that was the point that I was sort of making. I think all presidents are fair game for criticism. When Joe Biden takes over and becomes a president after the honeymoon period that always goes on with a new president, he'll be aptly criticized, I'm sure, no matter whether he does the greatest job in the world or not, that's what we do in America. We criticize the president, the Americans criticize the president. You know they criticize Barack Obama. They criticize George Bush. It's not going to change, uh, but when and that goes with the job. And I think every president would tell you that goes.
2: Yeah, with you it. don't find any president who loves the press.
4: No, no, I've never seen one. That. I can't wait to have a press conference. You know, uh, so. But I think what happened here, particularly uh, as as we uh, approach the election, is that the criticism spilled over into the people who voted for Donald Trump. I think that that began with Hillary Clinton made that um, regrettable comment about, you know, basket of deplorables. I can tell you that living here in Michigan, many people uh, here in the state of Michigan took that person. And if you remember, the state of Michigan ended up going for Donald Trump, barely, in uh, 2016, after everybody just presumed that Hillary Clinton would, would win it. You can't say those kinds of things. And I'm not picking on Hillary Clinton. That was one sentence said by one person. But I'm using that as, a, as, a, as an example. If you have that sort of attitude in your writing, in your reporting, in your commentary, you are going to alienate a good portion of the country. And that, that I can speak to because I don't believe you get to put down half of the country, whichever half it may be, simply because you have a position as a journalist your role as a journalist is to understand both halves of the country and understand how they come together as a whole. And you may personally think they're not as smart as you or, or, and, and by the way, this does not just go East to Midwest. This goes Midwest to East or Midwest to West too. There are plenty of people who write, who feel that, you know, they they call liberals with a, with a quotation mark and far left and all the rest. And they look down on them as, uh, you know, trying to take down the country. Or or coastal,
2: to... Even coastal
4: elites is a pejorative. Coastal, yes, coastal elites is, a, is as much a pejorative as a basket of deplorables. It's all bad. You don't divide the country up like that. And I think w- that's the new element that has happened in our journalism. We were already heading in this direction of, you know, left and right. But now the audience, the audience has been attacked. Uh, the voters have been attacked. And there's this uh, there's this sense of like you can talk about Trump voters as if they're all the same. And, you know, I, I know many Trump voters. I live in the Midwest and I can tell you they're not all the same, you know, and I can certainly tell you they're not all racist or homophobic. Uh, I can tell you that the people that I've met who voted for Trump, many of them don't like him, you know, uh, and they don't like him as Person They don't like the things that you pointed out about him, Um, but for whatever reason, they felt that they couldn't vote for the other party, you know, and and you shouldn't assume that everybody who votes for somebody has the characteristics of the person they voted for. I don't think everybody who voted for Joe Biden or Kamala Harris is a de facto Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. A lot of people just voted because they wanted a change. They don't want Donald Trump in there anymore. So this is, the, this is where I have been critical and you know, in one piece. I mean, it's not like what I do for a living. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just felt that we owe it to our humanity and we owe it to our citizenship and sense of citizenship not to demean the people who vote for a politician, but to try to understand them and understand the things that are behind it. Politicians are fair game. Presidents are fair game. But regular voters and citizens should be treated with respect by the media and i think sometimes we fall down on them
2: a few more thoughts from mitch album and maury right
3: after this Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What do you think is the way out of this, this very difficult time in our history? You know, I interviewed David Brooks, and he he talked about our tribal mentality, which isn't a newsflash, but I thought he he phrased it in an interesting way. He talked about the fact that Our political party has become our ethnicity, and it is so wrapped up in our identity. You know, politics used to be something you kind of did on the side, right, that would come up during important elections, but it wasn't so defining as it is today. So how do you break those chains, and how do you kind of step out of This is who I am. And if you say anything that's different, it's almost a primal threat to my survival.
4: Yeah. Well, first of all, I have a couple of answers to that. First of all, I don't think we're as defined by our politics as the people who write about politics think we are defined by our politics. This is part of the problem. Everything is seen through the prism of where the people who are commenting on it, Uh, tend to work. I mean, the same people who are pondering this issue are the people who are covering this issue and writing about this issue. Whereas I can tell you that when the election's over, okay, this one's stretching out because of the the controversy over the counting of the votes. But whenever it comes to an end and a few people around here outside my window here in Michigan, they're not spending every minute talking about politics or what political party they're associated with or what tribe they're associated with. These are things that the media makes up and and, de- and determines. So right off the bat, you know, one of the great things for me, Katie, by leaving the East Coast and coming to the Midwest was learning that the world doesn't begin and end in like that famous New Yorker yeah. cartoon. Oh, you know, this first that Second Avenue, First Avenue, California. You know, uh it, it, there's this whole middle where people just go about their lives and they really aren't they aren't debating about did you see to just read that piece in the Times this morning. It's not a sentence out here. And, and it's not it doesn't it's not what motivates people. So one, the first step is to recognize that not everybody defines themselves by their politics. I think people do define themselves in America today by something. And I think we're very identity oriented. And the for me, the cure for that, uh, which is the second part of my answer to your question of, of three parts, um, is to put yourself in a situation where this isn't an obsession. So I'm very blessed. I think you know that I, I operate in an orphanage in Haiti and I've been there for the last 11 years and I go every single month of my life and I'm there, you know, up to a week, sometimes two weeks for, of every month. There is no worry about which political party you're in in Haiti. It's where am I going to eat and where I'm and how am I going to get food and how am I going to get clean water and how, and how am I going to take care of this child that I don't have any money for? That's it. And when you deal, go to places and you don't have to go as far as Haiti. You can do it right here in America. There are many, many places in America where you go, where you say, OK, our, our, our concerns right now are much more basic food, education, safety. You quickly realize the argument over who's going to who's going to be the new defense secretary really doesn't change your, your daily existence. And number three. You got to you got to take. These, these devices and, and, and just say, I'm going to give myself a limit and then that's it. Don't dive. You know, people somehow think that they're getting perspective by diving deeper into social media when actually they're narrowing their perspective as they dive deeper into social media because they're just staying on that. And they're just adding another person to follow on Twitter or, you know, trying to get more people on Facebook. That is not broadening your perspective, even though you feel you're growing because look how many followers I got, look how many people I follow. You're not growing. You're shrinking. You're shrinking because your perspective is shrinking and you're not going outside that little device to see the world and to see real people. And so. The only way it's going to change is if people really start taking to this like they did to smoking. You know, we we actually finally turned a corner on smoking after decades where people said, well, I can't. It's addicting. I can't do anything about it. But eventually enough people died and enough and enough facts came out. And people said, you know what? Maybe I should stop smoking. You know, maybe my kid shouldn't start smoking. And and maybe there'll be a moment with social media where we'll kind of realize the, the damage it's doing to us and actually start to pull back from it. When that happens, then maybe you see the temperature turn down a little bit on this national divide. I go back to my visits with Maury again. I, you know, again, that's 25 years ago now.
1: Believe Um, it or not, Maury
4: died 25 years ago last week.
1: um, That was the
4: fifth anniversary of his death. And so it was 25 years ago that I was sitting beside him as he was dying and asking a lot of these similar questions. Uh, in my own, you know, little youthful version of myself, uh, and you know, one of the things he said about anger was that, and I, you know, at the time, I remember h- asking him about anger too. There were angry shock jocks and angry, you know. I think Rush Limbaugh was kind of getting started and getting big, and there was a lot of anger going on in the and the, 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 the O.J. Simpson trial was going, you know, that case was going on and right. right in '95, 19- it happened while I was there. So there was plenty of divisiveness in the country back then. You know, we didn't invent it in 2020. And I asked him about, you know, all this anger and said, Mitch, that reflects unsatisfied lives. You know, lives that, that, are, are th- that, that don't have in them the, the essences th- to feel like you have contentment. And he mentioned, you know, the love, community, family, feeling needed. Um, all of those things were antidotes to this anger. When all you have is your little world of, you know, this one said this one, and this one said this one, and this one said this one, you know, in in sports writing, which, you know, I, that's how I began. um, There was this thing that they used to do in New York all the time. Uh, They, they would go to a manager and they would ask him about, you know, like, what do you, what do you think of the other manager? And, you know, they'd keep pressing him until they got some comment. And then they run over to the other manager and they'd say, he just said this about you. What do you think about that? you know and he we said that was well, it and it's literally like stirring it's like alchemy it's like creating anger out of nothing you know because there wasn't any feud but you started a feud and <laughs> now there's a feud you know so it, 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 to create that anger it, that's what's happening in our political world too it's just like every little thing well what do you did you see what he said about this that's what twitter is you take this comment comment on the comment someone comments on your comment on the comment and they comment on that comment and they get angry and they get out but when you realize you don't need that to breathe, you don't need that to get up in the morning. You don't need that in your life. Um, if, if people can just get back to that uh, and start to emphasize those things that Maury said and other people said before him about what's really critical in life, you know, and, and a sense of community as Mr. Brooks may have said, and, and Maury said, said to me, and he was a big one who taught it to me, you know, sense of being involved in your community, sense of being needed, a sense of helping people who need help. If you want to get out of your own sense of misery or anger, just go find somebody who has it worse. And it's not hard to do. And that's what I meant when I said you go to Haiti every month. It's the second poorest country in the world. You can be on, you can get there an hour and a half from Miami. I mean, it's not like you're flying to the African continent. You know, it's right here. And you land there and you see, you know, people, people literally dying because forget about COVID. They don't even know they have COVID. They, they, they can't, you know, uh, Chica, who I wrote the, my last book about our little girl who we adopted from Haiti, her mother died giving birth to her baby brother because there was no doctor present and she had to do it herself and she started to bleed and something happened. If she was in a hospital, she, she never would have died. We never would have gotten She never would have adopted her. All those things never would have happened. So you realize how lives are changing on just on just little, geography and, and fate and where people happen to be. And you, the minute I get there, there's always something that needs to be done and always somebody that needs some help and always some kids we need to take care of. And, something. and you know, it goes like that and the time flies. And I always say to my wife, I, I say, we, we sleep down there on this old mattress that's maybe this thick on a bed frame that is made out of you know, wobbly wood in 100 degree heat. And I always sleep better there than I do anywhere else, including my beautiful, you know, home that I have here in America that I'm blessed to have. And I've I've asked her, I said, why do you think that is? You know, and she says, because you have a sense of purpose here, you know, and you, you sleep because, you know, at the end of the day that you did something that was important and needed. And I think a lot of times we go to bed in America just feeling like we just argued a lot but didn't necessarily make anybody else's life any different. And I'm blessed to have found this outlet because it helps keep me. I believe it helps keep me on a much more even keel.
2: Well, what advice would you give? I mean, it's so inspiring. And what would you say to people who say, yeah, I, I want to find a deeper purpose. I want to help someone who's less fortunate, but they might not know how to start or where to go or, what their calling would be, you know, mine became cancer because I lost my husband, as you know, Mitch, about 20, 22 years ago in January. And um, so, you know, what would you say to people in terms of finding something that, 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 that's bigger than themselves?
4: It's right around the corner. You do not have to go very far in this country or anywhere else to find it. You certainly don't have to get on a plane and fly to Haiti to do it. There are, there are if you're young, there are nursing homes. This is all after COVID. Well, of course, this discussion is post-COVID. But one of the fastest things you could do is there are nursing homes or places for the elderly that would just love to have someone come and visit and sit and talk, play piano. If you know how to play piano, read a story if you're a good reader. I mean, the simplest little thing. Play bingo. There are around- there you go. They're around every corner of where everybody lives. You know, there are so many young people who need mentors and who would just thrill at, at the idea of having someone take them to lunch or take them to a movie once a week or go play ball with them or whatever. I mean, and they're not hard to find. It's, it's really, as someone, you know, I, you know, I operate a lot of charities here in Detroit. I meet people all the time who tell me exactly what you just said. I'd like to get involved. I said, here's my number or here's the email just uh, we'll get you involved and in, there's a thousand things that you can choose from. It's not that hard to give of yourself in this country. In fact, God bless this country for being so charitable. There are other places in the world that people hold up as great countries and they are great countries are beautiful and all the rest of it, but they don't have this charitable sense that we do in America. This idea that giving a charity, getting involved, volunteering, all the rest of that stuff. It's, 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 uh, I don't want to say it's uniquely American, but it's very American and and there are so many organizations, so many charities set up to who want your help. Uh, you know, and, and I feel like saying to you, you go, tell everybody you talk to who has that problem that they can call me. But I'm afraid you have a big audience. <laughs> I might never get off. But, uh, you know, they can call certainly check in with their local agencies. There's many, many places need volunteers. That's true.
2: Well, in closing, Mitch, since it's the 25th anniversary of of Maury's death, Maybe we should end on, on how he changed your life and how he made your life better and richer and what you can share from Maury that may do the same for people listening to this.
4: So one time uh, I watched a bunch of people come and visit Maury um, on a day that I was there. And they all followed this same pattern. They had seen him on TV with Ted Koppel and all that. And they weren't really great friends, but they had known him a little bit or they wanted to come talk to him. And, and, but they were kind of uh, nervous about how to talk to a, a dying person. So they had like a strategy. They had photos and stuff, and they were all set to cheer him up, you know. And I would watch one at a time, they would go into Maury's office, the door would close, spend an hour, they'd come out an hour later in tears, but they would be crying about their love life, their divorce, their work, their something, all about them. And they said, well, I don't know what happened. I went in and tried to cheer him up. But after about five minutes, he started talking to me and started asking me questions about my life. And so I started talking. he started asking me more questions. I started really talking. Next thing I know, I was crying. Whatever. I wanted to try to cheer him up, but he ended up cheering me up. So I watched this happen, Katie, so many times that finally I went into him. I said, I don't get it. You're the one who's dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. You know, you've hit the mother load of sympathy here. You know, why don't you just say let's not talk about your problems, let's talk about my problem. And he looked at me as if I had stepped off of a spaceship, and he said, uh, "Mitch, why would I ever take from people like that? Taking just makes me feel like I'm dying. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. And I've never forgotten that sentence. It's profound. It's short. It rhymes, so it's easy to remember." giving makes me feel like I'm living, but it's so true. And I have found when I was seeing him, when I first went to go see him, I was all about my career, my ambition, my success. I don't think I was a a jerk necessarily, but I certainly wasn't concerned about other people. I was concerned about how fast can I get ahead? Um, The years that have passed since, particularly since Tuesdays or more the book came out and People started talking to me about that and knowing me more for that than anything else that I did um, have been so much more satisfying and and so much more about, you know, and my involvement now. I mean, my life is 60, 70 percent is charitable stuff and and I couldn't be busier, but I'm so much more um, satisfied than when I was just trying to shovel coal into my own furnace, you know, and and so. I would say that that whole notion of giving is living has really proven to be true, you know? And, uh, um, I thank him for that because it's, uh, it's guided my life, you know, to the point, you know, it's what ended up bringing me to Haiti and ended up, you know, I have 52 children I raised there now. And, and, uh, I never would have had any of that without that change in perspective. And it's never too late to change that perspective. You know, I mean, uh, my wife and I became parents when we were in our late 50s to this little girl from Haiti who had a brain tumor who we brought up thinking we'll get her operated on and we'll bring her right back to Haiti and she'll be fine. And she never went home, you know, and she ended up living with us for two years while we traveled around the world trying to find a cure. And even though ultimately, you know, we were not successful and she died when she was seven. But those two years that we had, changed our lives you know forever forever and we didn't lose a child we were given one you know and and it was an amazing blessing and it never would have happened if if I hadn't been following Maury's suggestion of you know giving is is what makes you feel alive and she certainly did to us so I think and I'm not unique in any way and I'm not special in any way all these things anybody can do anybody can have happened just if you want to change your perspective That's
2: all. Thanks again to Mitch Album. His most recent book is called Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. And a big thank you to Neil Rothschild and his turnout analysis at Axios. Be sure to follow me on social media and go to katiecouric.com to subscribe to my morning newsletter called Wake Up Call you'll get a little bit of Katie every morning in your inbox. And what could be better than that? Turnout is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric and Courtney Litz, supervising producers Lauren Hansen. associate producers Derek Clements, Eliza Costas, and Emily Pento. Editing by Derek Clements and Lauren Hansen. Mixing by Derek Clements. Our researcher is Gabriel Loser, And special thanks to my right-hand woman, Adriana Fazio. Meanwhile, yes, I'm Katie Couric. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time.